Hello and welcome to Everyday Medicine. I'm Dr. Luke and I'd like to thank you for joining me on this podcast series where we share conversations with colleagues exploring their special interests in medicine and bringing insights, ideas and advice which I hope will be applicable for our medical practices. In this podcast episode, we're talking with an expert about kidney stones. While renal stones are common, 10% of our population or more will develop stones in their lifetime. One of the consequences of stones, ureteric colic, is reported amongst 3 in 1,000 Australians per year, with male predominance and, curiously, an increasing incidence. Stones form when urine becomes supersaturated by minerals. The majority of stones contain calcium, but there are many other constituents, including oxalate, phosphate, uric acid, cysteine, and ammonia. In the setting of Crohn's disease involving the allium, bile salt malabsorption may lead to fat malabsorption and subsequently luminal calcium binding to non-absorbed fats, leaving luminal oxalate, formerly destined to be bound to calcium, now free to be absorbed through the portal system, elevating blood oxalate and leading to an increased incidence of oxalate stones in such cases. And as a gastroenterologist, I have to harp on about that just a little. The Australian stone belt, encompassing northern and central Australia, is well known for its increased presentations of urinary colic. No doubt, dehydration is a significant factor explaining the heightened prevalence there. Conditions such as gout, hyperparathyroidism, and some malignancies may also underlie an increased stone prevalence in some patients. Additionally, anatomical abnormalities such as calliceal diverticular and an obstructed polyuretic junction may reflect underlying factors leading to increased stone formation. The classic presentation of renal colic, coupled with hematuria, is well described. I was interested in understanding the decisions behind urgent intervention or expectant management in stone disease. How one may judge if a stone is likely to pass spontaneously, and the value, if any, of using alpha-adrenergic receptor blockers. When is an nephrostomy favoured over ureteroscopy and stenting? How is shockwave lithotripsy used, and what are the standard techniques for stone rupture and removal? I was also interested in reviewing the risk of future stone development, estimated at 10% per year, and what advice we should give to a patient who's experienced the distress of calculus disease. The prevention of stone formation does certainly warrant review. Prevention of primary or secondary stones is directed at avoiding supersaturation of urine and focuses on fluid hydration enough to pass an excess of 2 litres of urine per day. Low fluid and caffeine intake can both result, ultimately, in low urine volume, and increased urine concentration contributing to stone formation. Dietary advice, including limiting dietary phytates, an antioxidant compound found in whole grains, nuts and other foods, is important, as high phytate intake may lead to increased calcium absorption and urinary calcium supersaturation. Interestingly, a low dietary calcium and potassium intake has been found by the Mayo Clinic to be a more important predictor than fluid intake of recurrent kidney stone formation in one study and is possibly explained by subsequent higher urinary oxalate levels that arise from such a diet. The study concluded that diets with daily intake of 1.2 grams of calcium may help prevent first-time and recurrent kidney stones. High dietary potassium intake also was recommended. Fruits that are high in potassium include bananas, oranges, grapefruits, cantaloupes, honeydew, melons and apricots. Vegetables include mushrooms, peas, cucumbers and zucchini. So that's a diet to focus on. The control of uric acid production with allopurinol in the case of gout is also very important 
and the use of thiazide diuretics in some instances to reduce urinary calcium concentration, an effect occurring both at the nephron and at the bones, may also merit consideration. Well, to explore this expansive topic further, it was a great privilege to invite Dr. Paul Manahar to the conversation. And Paul undertook training both locally in Australia and internationally, with a focus on minimally invasive laparoscopic and robotic urological surgery and pain management. He also has a strong research interest and holds a position within the Monash University Prostate Cancer Laboratory. And please welcome Paul to the podcast. Paul Manahar, thank you very much. Urologist of the Stars, welcome you back. We've talked about hematuria, and uh, I really appreciate you spending more time with me to talk about another very interesting uh, subject for everyday medicine, which is stones, stone disease, Paul. And I, I did see a, a little meme of someone coming into the medical practice with uh, a lot of tummy, a lot of abdominal pain, loin pain, and so forth. But the picture was out of a rhino with a rhino's horn stuck into the person's back. And the doctor said, it's actually not a stone, so it's just the rhino. It's got that on your back, indicating, I think, how terribly uncomfortable stone disease is. C- can you tell us a little bit about stone disease? Paul, how common is it? And uh, then we can talk a little bit about the incidence and maybe why it's changing. Sure. So, uh, look, I-, I mean, stones are very common. They certainly are geographically uh, distributed. And we, uh, despite not being in the you know classic area, we have a great uh, climate for stones. Um, but somewhere between, you know, 10% in the, in the really, uh, stone prone areas down to about five or 6% lifetime, uh, prevalence in other areas. And it's rapidly rising with, uh, the Westernization and the, the changing of, uh, I guess, diets and, and attitudes and, and professions, uh, at the moment. It's, but it's, it's pretty common. 10% is common lifetime chance of having a stone well, i mean that's in certain areas so that's that's you know stone you're kind of talking, the yeah, more than nor- north of australia the south of the u.s and yeah. wrapping through southeast asia um and, and and i guess it's it's rising for not just uh the fact that uh you know people are becoming you know we we do have an increase in obesity we've got an increase in diabetes we've got uh these lifestyle factors we've also got a more sedentary population we've got people who i'm sure you must come across these as well who just say i don't like water and so yeah there's a there's a significant difference in 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 you know what people will drink um but also we've now got a lot better detection so we're probably finding lots of stones that we just wouldn't have known about before well, can you tell us a, bit, a little bit about why they form the supersaturation that occurs in the urine? Just run us through the little. Uh, so, so you know, the, the classic, the, the most common, the calcium oxalate, or you know, the second most common uric acid stone that will form will, will pretty much form because you have too much either oxalate and the calcium oxalate form in your urine, or you uric acid urate uh, in the other one, and that's really. Uh, dilution is is going to be your answer. So it's it's very rarely your diet that 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 is doing this, unless you have a particularly very high oxalate diet. So uh, the classic with that will be someone who you know just sips black tea, has ten cups of black tea a day, no water. They're getting a very high oxalate load. Um, but not a high calcium load to bind it while it's still in the gut. So it's coming through the body and getting to the urine. 
And then they're not drinking enough water to just, as you said, the super saturation to just dilute it to the point that it can't form a stone. So, so that's the classic there. Uric acid, you do have the gout formers who naturally are trying to to secrete uh, to secrete their uric acid in the in the form. But but again, much more commonly than that is just someone who just constantly has quite uh, dark urine and. You know, I guess that's why everyone that comes out of urologists gets sick of us trying to say urine should be light yellow to clear, light yellow to clear, and uh, because the vast majority of people that will fix their issues. Yes, just drink more fluid. Yeah, yeah. Well, this the presentation to emergency department is you know it's often very dramatic, extreme pain, loin pain, and radiating down toward the groin. Um, this is also something that. You know, I'll kind of use the word malingerer, like the person who's maybe uh, opiate uh, sort of um, yeah. seeking might also come in. Or they know that this is, oh, yeah, this is a genuine situation. We're really sorry that you've got this pain. We'll give you some pethidine. Is, is there a simple way of someone in the emergency to sort of work out, oh, yes, you are genuine or you are the malingerer? Is it just enough to check the urine, look for blood? Or- so I think I think pre-scanning, this was a much bigger issue. Uh they, they certainly was back uh, in the day. You'd the, you know you'd have the guys that would cut the end of their foreskin. We so there was blood in the urine, uh, and they had, they'd have all the signs and symptoms. So you dipstick it. Yeah, it's probably a stone, and off it'd go. Uh, I, the best thing that happened to this was actually a trial that came out oh, about a few years ago now that that compared opiates for pain relief to non-steroidals for uh, for kidney stones, and and non-steroidals came up as as by far the better. Uh, pain relieving agent uh and so when we, we swapped from pethidine to really um indomethacid rectally it, it it really changed the the uh, people coming through you know as opposed to getting your high you were going to get a finger up the bump and the guys with genuine stones are going give me whatever you know just get this pain relief done uh but it, it is also something that that is hard to certainly coax the the more junior doctors particularly if they spent a fair bit of time you know, worrying about kidney function on Gen Med, and then you're saying we've got a blocked kidney. They kind of freak out and go, "But there's a blocked kidney, but I'm giving a non-steroidal." And you go, it, "It's safe. It's fine. In fact, it's better." Uh, and, and certainly, with all the opioid dependency things that we're doing, we, we would much prefer that they got got non-steroidals, got scanned, and and, and either saw us or, or didn't need to see us, but were discharged on you know something not not long-acting opiates. Well, that's very interesting. I, I, I think I probably, if I was in emergency, I probably wouldn't have known that. I would have just given, I would have been <laughs> yeah. one of the old style that would have been given. Uh, so it's really nice. No, we see, we probably see three patients a year, certainly at Monash, who will come to us in pain and narcotized when they get to the ward because they've just constantly been hit with morphine. Uh, and then, you know, you, you reverse them and give them, uh, and give them a non steroidal. Their pain gets better, but no one's ever happy after you've had to give them narcot. So, yeah, well, how, how do you work them up? What, what, what's your workup? So you're suspicious that there definitely is a stone, a bit of blood yeah. in the urine and so forth. What, what's your standard sort of workup and advice? Yeah. Oh, look, I, I think the the advent of the uh, low-dose and ultra-low-dose CT uh, has been great for this. Uh, there are certain, you know, maybe the, the young female that you may try an ultrasound, but the, the classic CT KUB used to come with a... a a radiation dose of about six or seven millisieverts. The ultra low dose CT comes with zero point three millisieverts, so mm. it's it's very safe. It's such a low dose, and because with the stone, you really you know 
you're just looking for a bright white spot. There's no subtlety to it. It's not, uh, you know, you, certainly if you're trying to do a C, you know, CT colonography or, or something where you're looking at very precise and mm. it's very hard, this is just a very gross scan and it'll give you all the information you need. Um, so that, that's been great. If you are worried if they're young or, or, you know, pregnant and you really can't do it, an ultrasound looking for hydronephrosis is probably a good start. And if there's no hydronephrosis, then they don't have an obstructing stone and, and you can probably move on and, and try looking for something else. Uh, but really, a CT is is quick and simple. They can do ultra-low dose most places. So, you know, around Berwick, IMED, Monash, Marina, Capital, all have the ability to do an ultra-low dose CT. Uh, and which works well, and and really it gives us it gives us the size, the sh- the location, whether it's hydronephrotic, gives us all the information we need. Yeah, well, are, the, are the differentials that you need to sort of consider? I guess you know, topic pregnancy is not going to be all that likely, but you know, to cause that sort of pain. But you know, there, there are are there any particular differentials or just you know, watch outs, red flags, that we're sort of thinking about. So, so if they come in, in in quite a lot of pain, the big differential that we always worry about is the ruptured AAA. Um, and that's probably because once a year somewhere in Victoria, a ruptured AAA gets admitted to the urology ward. Um, and, and we certainly, that's all because it's it's the same. It's a, it's a severe back pain. They look, I mean, kidney stone patients look a lot sicker than once they've had their scan. They're pale, they're sweating. Their heart rates up. They're they're writhing. It's it's just like a AAA, uh, and that's the big thing that you just really don't don't want to miss. Um, apart from that, anything else you anything else that can really give you unilateral pain is certainly there. But uh, you even diverticulitis and things often come yeah. uh, with a concern for us in the ectop. But but they're they're not. I guess you know once if you do your CT scan. You can rule out a stone. You may even pick up the diverticulitis or the ectopic. But you know, if you if you're waiting on someone who's, uh, you know, you review the CT four hours later and it's a ruptured AAA, that's a pretty big, big deal. T- take us how you go forward from there. Then, so you you've got a stone. How do you determine whether you're going to intervene relatively so, early, or whether you're going to send them home? What what's your sort of thought process there? How do you guide the management uh, protocol? So there are the classic patients that have to have. An intervention and that if they're infected obstructed yes so if this if you've got any concern that they may be septic they need to have that kidney drained right. and you're not going to move the stone or anything just stead them or an nephrostomy tube and that's it yeah. then manage them for their sepsis and uh the like if it's a solitary kidney uh obviously you know you're going to be worried about them making any urine if there's stones both sides who does the nephrostomy tube, Paul? Can, can I ask? Is that something that the urologist, the radiologist, radiologist does? Okay. We, we 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 I guess we try our best not to, but we we will do them during an operation. But but if they come into emergency, we usually get the radiologists to do it. Yeah. Okay. So and you'd go with an nephrostomy tube rather than a stent. But how do you decide what you're going to choose there? So, oh, look, I think that's one of the that's certainly one of the questions that we always love throwing up at our final year trainees. Which which one would you go? Because they both have such pros and cons. Um, you know, you've got these are your, these are often in urology the sickest patients we get. So, uh, do you would you rather take your sickest patient to a theatre where you've got an anaesthetist and a full team around you to put a stent in? Um, but it's a general anaesthetic. 
you know, you're reliant on on the stent to work and then come out the catheter. So sometimes you might not know if your stent's blocked because you still see stuff coming at your catheter. Um, whereas a nephrostomy is done under local anaesthetic, you know, nice and simple in your uh, unwell patient, and you can see the pus draining immediately, and you can see if it's blocked because there's nothing coming out. Um, but you're also taking your sickest patient off to the back wards of radiology. Uh, so there's there's that kind of classic way up. And and in the end, we usually err on the side of a nephrostomy because we just want to make sure it is draining. Is it hard sometimes also with a stand to determine in advance that you're going to be successful? Well, I'm imagining there's a stone size uh, above which it would be hard to pass a stent. Is, is that uh, you can usually you can usually slip it past? It's it's quite rare to be unable to pass a stent. Yeah. Okay. So they're they're the urgent ones that you're dealing with. What about the ones that you know you might decide? Okay, I think this patient actually can go home. What's your decision based? They're not infected. Okay, there's no hydrophrosis. Okay. It, then is it the stone size that determines that? So they can even have hydronephrosis. That's that's not as concerning for us. The big thing is, do we think they'll pass it on their own and pass it in a in a fair time? So, you know, a small stone, say less than five millimeters, in the distal third of the ureter, has about a ninety percent chance of passing on its own, okay. uh, and that that saves them usually from two operations. So we will often have to pass a stent either after the initial surgery or before you can access the stone, which means they're coming back to either have the stent removed or to have the stone and stent removed. So if they can pass it on their own, it's, it's often a win. Um, the ureter is about a third the size of the urethra. Um, the urethra is quite large. So the actual expulsion once it's hit the bladder is not an issue. Uh, that, that'll fly out and, and usually cause absolutely no problems at all. In fact, you often have to tell patients, you know, they'll, you'll rescan them and they pass their stone and they'll say, but I didn't see it, I didn't feel it. And, and it's, it's you know, you go, because, you, you know, not unexpected. But, uh, again, the, the the farmers that we were talking about before, they're the guys that do notice it because they're peeing in the paddock and going, just go, <laughs> oh, here it is. <laughs> <There's any other>. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's <laughs> my stone. Uh, but, yeah, it's, um yeah, either, so I reckon, if they're distal third five millimeters, you know, low pain, uh, to pain's manageable with oral uh, things, even if they've got hydronephrosis and they've got a safe other kidney, then that's all fine. You can leave that. The other ones are a bit shared decision making. So in the UK, they'll go anywhere up to 10 millimeters. If you've got a really small stone that's quite high, it's probably still likely to pass. Um, but if you've got a big stone, an eight millimeter stone that's still you know, only a couple of centimetres from the renal pelvis, he, the chance of that passing would be 20%. So it's those sorts of patients you'd, you'd probably say, look, we'll save you the angst and the pain. If you're already getting pain and it's only gone two out of the 23 centimetres it needs to go, we may as well go and treat you for that. And would that treatment be um, a stent initially or you try and do a more definitive treatment and remove that stone? I, 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 think, I think you'd always try. Um with a, a very low threshold to, to backing out. The worst thing you want to do is, you know, these ureters are usually tight in spasm. And the last thing you really want to do is is put a hole in it, which is also uh, why, you know, big ones in the distal uh, urethra are great because you can quickly get them and, and treat them. But when they're up high, safe, safety first usually. And I, I'd always have a, have a try, but I would have a very low threshold if the, the scope is not moving nice and freely back out and put a step. 
So we're talking about using a, a sister scope, which I understand are only about the modern ones are about two. Is that right? Ureteroscope, I should say. They're only about. And using ureteroscope. Yes, a big point. They're, they're what, about two millimeters in diameter, Paul. They're, they're very small. Yeah. So so the so the, the the really small ones we've got are about six French, which means that the entire diameter is about six millimeter, um, which is pretty small. Uh, which means they're about you know two millimeters across. Um, as a, as a kind of diameter. So yeah, exactly right. They're, they're very small, they're long, um, but they can still do a bit of damage. So, you know, particularly with our trainees, we really try to say, don't push too hard on the primary stone because you can very easily slip out the side. Yeah. So are you doing that procedure with a general anesthetic? Uh, general anesthetic. General anesthetic. And then you're, what, what are you using to, to fracture the stone? Is it a laser fiber passed down the channel of the... So, yeah, so... So most places now will have a laser that we can use, uh, which will bust the stone. And the lasers have become very, very good. We can, uh, very strong, we can bust big stones, break them to dust very quickly and under vision so you can see that they're broken to dust and, and are quite good. Uh, the other option is a, is, uh, is a little pneumatic jackhammer, which certainly, which is say, for instance, in Warrigal, which is what we've got, which we don't have a laser and it goes up and it just drills, drills into the hole into the stone and it, it, it still works very well um it's just not as precise or and you don't get the really tiny bits of dust you kind of fracture the stone into four bits which you then pull out with a dormia basket okay whereas if it's a laser you don't need to but also you don't need to remove it on i suspect because yeah. it's very small and but, but with the laser there's a risk of certainly the most modern ones you can dust yeah okay is the risk of the laser is, is perforation of the uh the urea by just Perhaps being a little bit off your angle when you shoot. Oh, you'd have to you'd have to really try the the laser that we use is a holmium laser, and it gets absorbed in zero point two millimeters of water. So okay. if you're not straight on the stone, it won't even touch the stone. You need to be touching the stone. Uh, and so if you aim it off to the side, it just gets absorbed okay. in, the, so very in the water well before it can do any damage. Very so, safe. Yeah. Okay, fantastic. So just just to recap, if you've got if you've got an infection, you're going to intervene urgently. If it's um, a uh, hydro, if you've got a uh, hydronephrosis, you wouldn't necessarily intervene urgently if there's no infection. So what you were saying, yeah. So that it doesn't trouble no. you much to see if yeah, I, I mean, yeah, as long as there's not the infection. It, if a kidney can be blocked thirty days without it having any long term issues, uh, and when you're going to save someone from two operations, then that's the risk balance is usually quite good. Um, Laura, well, I know urologists often seem to be very relaxed about these things, and I, I think I have sent patients off in the past that should something be about, but you're explaining why uh, your decisions are correct. It, it, just to recap also, if it's a smaller stone and it's in the lower third, uh, you'll go to reassure that patient and they're going to be discharged. You've got to follow up with repeat, like a repeat X-ray. Do you have to do a repeat CT on those patients or how... So I- yeah, ideally you do a repeat something unless they can catch the stone. So if you've got a really engaged patient who loves it, you'd, you'd tell them to pee into a bottle and sieve their urine every time. And then if they can present it to you, great. And they only had one, that's fine. Uh, but uh, in reality, you usually end up having to do something. If Again, you, you, you'd weigh that up. So an ultra low dose, you know, if they're an older patient, you know, an ultra low dose CT is great. You'll get your answer. If they're young, you may just do an ultrasound and make sure the hydronephrosis is gone. Perfect. Staghorn calculi, is that something we need to talk about? Yeah, they do happen. They're happening more and more commonly uh, now. They're usually 
uh, a grumbling infection in the kidney that's caused it. Uh, and, and then the stone grows in perfectly in the shape of the kidney. Uh, we can do these now um, via a one-centimetre incision over the kidney uh, through a percutaneous nephrolithotomy. The camera goes down and, and, and it can be done like that. It's a big, long operation. Uh, but they're the stones that, even though they may be asymptomatic and not obstructive, if left untreated, they're the stones that can actually cause significant you know, loss of life and loss of kidney. It, as I normally fall me because there's some anatomical abnormality or not not necessarily. Is there is there a oh, more, more yeah. often than not it's a grumble it's a, an ongoing infection in the kidney. It's an infection type stone that's that's formed them and then they've kept growing from that. Yeah. Other medical expulsive treatments, those alpha adrenergic yeah. blockers, are, are they used? Is it something that you use? Uh, Tams tamsulosin and so forth, or are they considered to be maybe, you know, not a lot better than placebo? Yeah, they're, 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 the, the original study came out were very promising, and certainly that was everybody was on it uh, that had a stone. And then we found that there, there is evidence now that it may help the pain relief in lower third stones, but it may they, these are the stones that probably would have passed anyway. Uh, again, I'd usually use shared decision-making. I'd say, look, this is the option. In Australia, unfortunately, these stones aren't, these medications aren't on the PBS for anything. So it's not like we can even say, oh, you've got a bit of LUTs, give it to them anyway. They're not on for anything. So uh, if, if the patient's willing to pay $40 for the, the month's supply for the slight benefit, go for it. But really, it's um, you, if they said no, you're not upset. Okay. Uh, further risk. So what was the chance of a recurrent stone? 50%. So the, the classic one is if you've had one, there's a 50% chance you'll have another one uh, in your life. And... And, and if you can adjust your lifestyle factors, you will be in the good half of that, uh, as long as you don't have any, you know, of the other sort of metabolic or, or anatomical causes for stones. But in reality, uh, most people are very good for a couple of years, and then they'll even come to you and go, I've got a stone again, it's because I lapsed. Okay. What, what about the use of, like, you, you, you've worked out it's, it's a calcium stone or it's a uric acid stone. You might then, once you've done the analysis, you might well then decide upon, upon some medical treatments to try and prevent further stone formation. We've talked about keeping fluid intake up. Um, do, do, are you, like, do you tend to push patients toward using a diuretic? Obviously, if they've got down, you're going to be using allopurinol, but is there is there much value in using thiazides or uh, citric acid and so forth? What, what do you say to patients about that? Well, I mean, citric acid's great. I think there's, it's low risk. They can, you know, squeeze a bit of lemon, take a supplement yeah. uh, into a glass of water. That's 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 all great. And I, I usually do try and encourage a bit of that. Uh, the use of diuretics, these patients are usually dry. That's why they've got stones. And so I try and avoid because that, that'll just dry them out more. I mean, if you've got someone who is drinking a lot and not making urine, they're ice sweaters or losing it in another way that may be something we can, you can look at but but certainly the, the main reason most of these patients are forming stones is because they are dry yes. and and just making more urine i try what, to avoid what about this oh, okay. you know it'd be great for me but not for not yes what, what about for thiazide zone sort of affecting the cal try to affect the calcium concentration of the urine is that something that's been used much by urologists or so, so if 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 the patients have hypercalciuria certainly but a calcium oxalate stone is usually driven by the oxalate Okay. Uh, so the oxalate will suck the calcium into the stone. 
And so it's mainly the oxalate that's causing it. A hypercalciuria patients, we, we would that's something we would even refer usually to a nephrologist because that that's often a cause. Is it hyperparathyroidism? Is there something else going on? Yeah. Um, or are they do they have some inbuilt renal issue that's thing this? Whereas too much oxalate in the urine is is usually diet. So well, that's tremendous. What, what's the future, uh, Paul? You've got some very interesting things. There. The laser you mentioned, the jackhammer you mentioned. Uh, you know, it seems like you've got mm. about everything covered. What, where do you see the future going with stones? We're seeing an increased incidence. We mentioned it right at the start. What, what do you think the future holds? I think I think the future's got to be smaller scopes so that we can treat patients primarily quicker. Yeah. Uh, you know, they're already pretty small, but if, if we can get small, more manoeuvrable scopes, it would be. Yeah, much cleaner, easier, less likely to damage. The lasers are advancing rapidly. I, I, you know, the ability to treat now, even in in sort of you know, ten years ago, if you had a ten millimeter stone, that was an hour long operation, uh, sitting on a laser or, or whatever for quite a while. And now, you know, the the most recent stones uh, are able to fire the laser up to a hundred times a second. So. You, you you rapidly can get through a stone maybe fifteen minutes. So and extracorporeal shock wave lithotripsy is that is that something that really has had its day? We're not really using that very much in clinical practice. Certainly, so we still use it. Um, it's it's very good uh, when it's used well. Uh, it, it is actually quite good in the acute setting, so patients with with acute stones, but it's just usually too hard access. That these machines are not common. I think there's there's three in Melbourne, uh, and then you'd have to get staffing for it after hours to to treat the stone. Whereas there's a theatre always ready to go, uh, a stent's quite easy to put in. So they they usually end up down that pathway. The the elective stone, a biggish stone sitting in the upper pole of the kidney, so that when it breaks, it's likely to just drop down the ureter in uh, in fragments. Is a great case for uh, extracorporeal shock wave lithotripsy. It will work well. It will save them from having anything put in the body uh, and, and no stent. So it it's on selected stones where you can plan. It's great. Uh, and if you happen to turn up to St. Vincent's and the lithotriptors ready to go, then it's a great option. Or, um, but but that's happened so rarely. So. But Paul, thank you very much for taking us through this. Uh, yeah, it's a great presentation on, on stones again. and. Yeah. I have to say, if I wasn't doing gastroenterology, I think I would be really drawn to urology. You know, all the practical that's I we like the practical side of it. You know, in fact, you get such great outcomes. But what would you advise a young, a young intern who's maybe sort of, think, you know, Doctor Man, how should I do? Should I do urology? They come to you as their mentor. What would be your kind of uh, <laughs> comments? Yeah. Oh, look, I, I think the first thing to say, stones. And stones are great because we're, we're the we're the only operation mentioned in the Hippocratic Oath. We are mentioned. Don't do it. <laughs> I promise not to do it, but uh, but uh, but yeah. Look, I, I think I think urology is is great because uh, if you're young and you're thinking, it's you can take it to the extreme level, doing really big, long operations where you you have you know all, all the excitement and things of, of a big operation, or you can move to you know doing lots of small things and and spend time with with family. You can you know not work weekends. You can you can get a quite a niche practice in a small area and and really judge your time i, I think it, it works well for for really all, all all types of people whether you want it to be all about all life where 
it's all encompassing and you're doing big things and stuff all the time or anything in between from that. So we're also the only specialty, you know, well, we, we like to say we are, there's probably others that doesn't have a physician equivalent. There's no prostate physician. There's no bladder physician. Uh, so because of that, we do manage a lot of medical things. Uh, you know, we see a lot of patients we will never operate on, yeah. uh, which makes it, which makes it, you know, nice and interesting. So, uh, you do get that, that fair balance of operative and non-operative stuff. And, and you know, you really, uh, you, you probably in, in your area get some, but we, I, we like to say we get the funniest stories, you know, we get the guys coming in talking about their sexual escapades, talking about things that put up, wanting to show you. It, it's, you know, you, you've always got a good story or a funny story at the end of the day. So <laughs> it's a very rapid career. Oh, Paul, thank you very much for joining. Yeah. It's been a real pleasure having you. Yeah, tremendous. Thank, no, thank you very much. Thanks for the opportunity. Thank you for joining in the conversation today with Dr. Paul Manahar, who expertly guided us through the subject of renal calculi. We discussed stones, but not so much bones, abdominal groans, thrones, and psychiatric overtones, as the latter more specifically reflects the condition of primary hyperparathyroidism. You'll have to wait for another episode before we tackle that subject. Now, during the podcast series, we will be covering a wide range of topics across many specialty interests. The discussions are not intended as specific medical advice for patients, but as general information only and reflect the opinions of the guests interviewed. Requests for new topics to be reviewed and comments about the conversation you've listened to are welcomed. Maybe email to manager at gihealth.com.au.